You are listening to From the Trinity Pulpit, a podcast of Taproot Faith. This is Matt Joyner, and I am the host of Taproot Faith and the pastor of Trinity Reformed Episcopal Church in Mason, Ohio. If you're looking for a liturgical, biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-loving church and live in or are visiting the Cincinnati area, feel free to join us any Lord's Day. We would love to have you. And now, here's the sermon for this past Sunday. you to be seated. And as you're doing so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, our gospel for this morning. As we begin, I'd like to point out I meant no disrespect to our Baptist brethren by the uh, bishop comments, of course, just uh, all things in good jest, a funny moment from my past. But uh, in any case, as we're looking at Luke chapter 18, we are in the midst of a couplet of parables that the Lord has told. The first is the parable of the persistent widow, which, of course, is an encouragement to all of us to come before the throne of grace with persistent and unyielding prayer. That this woman comes before this judge who doesn't particularly care for her, but she is so persistent and so persistent in her badgering him that he relinquishes and he gives, he relents, excuse me, and gives her that which she seeks. And he is encouraging us to come with that same persistence in prayer to the Lord. But this morning, excuse me, this morning we are met with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This was a very, very important gospel passage when I was a priest in the Orthodox Church because we actually have a Sunday. We had a Sunday devoted to this every year on the liturgical calendar, the Sunday of the publican and the Pharisee, given a great deal of weight in this cycle of the Lenten journey, actually, is where it falls. And this parable, Jesus tells in the presence, as always, or usually, to speak to the relationship of the Pharisees, the religious people, and those who are most despised. And he often uses the imagery of a tax collector. Of a tax collector. Now, in our day... Being a tax collector has maybe some of the weight that it had back then in terms of being disliked, especially with the news of the last couple of weeks that we're getting several thousand more tax collectors. But in Jesus' day, these people were traitors. Tax collectors were traitors. They were people chosen from among conquered peoples to take taxes from their own people and give them to Rome. And on top of that, the Romans didn't give the tax collectors any specific amount that they could charge. They could say, here's what we, meaning the Roman Empire, need. Here's what we need. You can take whatever you want. And so these tax collectors became known for extracting enormous sums of money above and beyond what they were required to take from the Roman overlords. They would receive huge taxes and give that percentage to Rome, and then they would live large on whatever was left over. 
And what is amazing is the, the time that Jesus seems to take to being with these people and ministering to them. We know, of course, the story of Zacchaeus, little Zacchaeus up in the tree. Jesus ministers to this tax collector, comes and eats at his house, and Zacchaeus says, I will give back everything I have taken, and whatever, in ever, whatever way I have extorted, I will repay fourfold. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. And of course, we know full well that Jesus even called a tax collector to be one of his disciples, his close twelve, the man whose name I bear, Matthew. Levi, the tax collector. And so Jesus would intentionally go out of his way to utilize tax collectors as examples. He would minister to them because they were the most hated. And he would point to the Pharisees, who were those who were seen as the most holy, the most pure. In fact, the word Pharisee, Pharisaeus, means The pure ones. The pure ones. I'm also very much inclined to ask whether they took that title upon themselves. And all evidence from history seems to indicate that they did just that. That they took it upon themselves. In later centuries, the word Puritan would be given to certain men, but it would be a derogatory term given to them. But... From everything I've been able to see in history, Pharisee was a name that they took upon themselves. They saw themselves as a cut above the pure ones, the unsullied, those who followed the law. But what's interesting is that the Lord does not reprimand them for keeping the law. You'll notice that he never does that. He doesn't say, how dare you keep the law? He comes down hard upon them for adding to the law and not keeping the heart of the law for not offering their hearts for it being all about the externals but not about a living faith in which the law was written upon their hearts and that level of puritanical if you want to use that word I don't like that word but if you want to use that is a looking down the nose at those around them who are not quite up to snuff. And here we find Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Who thought that they were righteous. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Paul answers this for us. He reminds us, in Romans chapter 3, he reminds us how many people there are who are actually righteous. How many are there? None. Romans chapter 3 says, For there is none righteous, no, not one. Not one. Not a single human being outside of Jesus Christ himself has ever been righteous. None. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Period. That is the reason why Jesus has to come. He must live perfectly. He must live righteously. So that in his death and in his resurrection and through faith in his name, we may receive his righteousness. 
We must receive that great exchange where he takes upon himself our sin and we receive his righteousness. And in that, we answer the very first verse in this parable. He said this to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. We should already keep in our minds exactly what these people think of themselves and how deluded they are. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We're meant to understand that this is not during a normal sacrifice time. This is not on a holy day. These are just two men going up to the temple to offer up their personal devotions to the Lord. Presumably, obviously, both men living in Jerusalem. They go up and they offer their prayers to God. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. He prays to God about himself. Now, we offer up to God our own struggles, whatever it is that we're struggling with. We pray to God about ourselves. But the way that this is written and the way that it's constructed in the Greek is to make us realize that this man is coming before God, but he's not coming to hear from God. He's not coming to interact with God. He is coming to lay himself out before God as something great. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. It's a wonder he didn't add, and I'm so good-looking on top of it. (laughs) He comes before him, and he does not offer any real thanks to God. He comes, and he says, Thank you, God, that I'm so awesome. Thank you. That's precisely what he's doing. He stands and prays about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. There's this staring down the nose. There is this smug arrogance that comes through latching on to externals. Many times we think that if we simply go through the outward motions of a faithful life, of going to church, of saying our prayers, of doing whatever it is, of giving to the church, of doing charitable things. We think that that's enough in and of itself. And he gives, he says, I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Think about this in your mind. And if you say you've never done this, we should probably talk about your lying problem. Have you ever watched TV, watched the news, Seen someone committing some heinous act. Someone kills someone, robs a bank, commits some horrible atrocity. And we secretly say to ourselves, well, I'm not that bad. I didn't kill anybody. I'm not that bad. And this is when the question of the goodness of mankind comes up. Is man inherently good? Are you a good person? And when we ask someone, are you a good person? The response is usually given in the negative. Yes, I know I'm a a good person. How do you know? I haven't killed anybody. I don't steal. I don't cheat on my wife. It's like, okay, that just means that you're not a murderer, a thief, an extorter, or an adulterer. 
There's no positive. That doesn't mean you're a good person. And with that in mind, the Pharisee then switches gears. He gives the list of all the things he doesn't do, but then he presents God with his resume. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth. He gives the tithe of everything I get. But here's the thing. The fasting twice a week was a practice instituted by the Pharisees. They would offer up the fasts to God as a means of disciplining themselves. But the tithe is something that they were commanded to give. This was their tax. So this would be like you and me coming to prayer to the Lord and saying, Lord, I am so virtuous. I paid my taxes. It's like, no, you pay your taxes so you don't go to jail. That's not virtuous. It's what you're expected to do. And so this man is standing before God and saying how wonderful he is by giving the examples of all the things that he's doing that he should be doing anyway. There's nothing virtuous about doing what we should be doing anyway. There's nothing virtuous about that. And in fact, we're told in the scriptures that when we come before the Lord, having done all the things that we should be doing, all we can say, if we live it perfectly, all we can say is that I have only done my duty. That's it. I have only done my duty. And how many times do we justify ourselves before God by offering up our resume to him? We justify our actions and our sinfulness by saying that I'm not as bad as other people. And we justify ourselves by saying and listing all the things that we do that are virtuous. But the problem is, is the first of those measures us up against other people. And the other one measures us up against God. And in both cases, we will fail miserably. Because as soon as we have looked at other people and compared ourselves to other people, we have become subject to the commandment not to judge, lest we should be judged. Not to condemn, lest we should be condemned. And when we give God our resume, we are reminded of the words of the prophet that says that our righteousness before God is as filthy rags. That's all it is. His attitude of coming before the Lord is completely worthless. All of his externals, all of his nice pharisaical robes and all of his rituals and his prayers on the street corners and in the synagogues, as Jesus says, are simply worthless, pointless. No fruit or benefit to his soul whatsoever. But what is the right answer? Verse 13. But the tax collector... Standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven. You get this image that the tax that the Pharisee is getting up as close to the sanctuary in the temple as he can. He's one of the pure ones. He's allowed to do this. He's allowed to stand as close to the sanctuary, to the holy place, as he is able to. But the tax collector, standing far off. I believe the Greek implies that he's standing far off, not only from the holy place, but also from the Pharisee. 
would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This man comes before the Lord. He comes into the temple knowing and approaching tentatively, knowing that he is a sinner. And he stands far off as if just to be there, as if fear that getting any closer would consume him. And he simply calls out to God for mercy, striking his breast, that old practice of mourn, of mourning and sorrow. Have mercy on me. As a way to say, my heart has betrayed me. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. And this have mercy on me can also be translated as turn your wrath from me. Turn your wrath from me. Do not be angry with me, Father. Forgive me. And when we realize that this is the only possible response in approaching God. When we come before him and we see that I am an unworthy sinner who needs grace. I don't need to come before him and give him the laundry list of all the good things I've done in my life. Because as soon as I do that, he will give me If I come in with a single sheet and say, look at all of these wonderful things I've done. He will give me 16 phone books full of all the rotten things I've done. And if we weigh my good deeds with my sins in the balance, I am in trouble. But if I come before him seeing those volumes stacked up of my sins and I say to him, have mercy on me in Jesus name for his sake and by his blood have mercy upon me. He consumes those volumes of my sin in fire in an instant. And they no longer exist. They are no longer held to my account. But what is rather held to my account is that when he looks at me, when I call out to Jesus, he sees Jesus. He sees the Lord. He sees the blood of Christ on the door of my heart. And this man calls out to the Lord, have mercy on me. What is mercy? What is that? The workings of God in terms of our sin are threefold. We get one of three things. We get mercy, we get justice, or we get grace. One of those three. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. And God has given us in his son both mercy and grace. He has not given us what we deserve. He has given us what we don't deserve, which is communion with himself. And what is necessary for us to have this is faith in his name. And when we come before him, we come before him as a poor sinner in need. Simply saying, have mercy on me. 
These Pharisees were looked at as men who had all the answers. They did everything right. Everything except let the law of God chisel into the cement casing around their hearts. And for us, the law of God should descend into our hearts so that the law of our hearts is the law of love. The law that guides us in love to give each man his due before God. To give each one the dignity of loving them according to the law of God. To give mercy as we have received it. To give grace as we have received it. He calls out for God to give him mercy, recognizing that he is a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this one, meaning the tax collector, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. I've talked about this before, but it always bears repeating. When the scriptures use the word justification, justify. It's a legal term. Actually, it's a banking term in Greek. And it means to have a good account. He went home justified with his accounts before God settled. He went home with God with all of his accounts zeroed out with the treasures of God's mercy and grace. He went home with that. The Pharisee did not. And he reminds us here, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. For most of Christian history, humility has been held up as the chief of the virtues. And it is that virtue through which most of us struggle and strain to gain. Because for many of us, most of us, I would wager, the temptation to some form of pride is that which leads us into most other faults in some way, shape, or form. Whether it is the pride of vanity, the pride of our opinion, the pride of anger, the pride in our work, the pride in our families, the pride in whatever it may be that leads us to something else. But he reminds us that the humble, those who see themselves as they really are, that's what humility really means, to see yourself for who you really are, not what you've made yourself to be, and not in some false self-abasement, but who you really are, to see yourself that way as God made you, not exalting yourself nor tearing yourself down, but as you actually are. Those who humble themselves will be exalted by God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this parable. We thank you for the reminder that you have given us that it is not by our pride, it is not by our resume, our pedigree, it is not by any of these things that we are found to be justified by you. But it is only by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, 
to your glory that we are found just in the sight of a holy God. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who lived the law perfectly so that that perfect life can then be imputed to us, given to us as a gift of grace. And we ask you, Lord, to keep us in our hearts and in our minds in a humble frame so that when the last day comes, we will be exalted by you because of humility and of love for you and not because we have pretended that we are above anyone else. We ask all of this in the blessed name of Christ our Lord.